morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today at Solace Church. Uh, this is week three of our series called Since You Asked. And today we're going to talk about some theological ideas. We've talked about historical Jesus, historical Christianity. We've talked about practical Christianity. Today we're going to talk about some of the theology. Who is God and why, should, why does it matter that I know the information about who God is? And so I can't wait to share with you that information. If you're a guest visiting with us today, thanks for being here Uh, as we conclude our series. And what I want you to consider as we talk for the next couple of minutes, I want you to consider uh, the question and the implication of the question. The the answer means something in my life. It means something for you. It means something for me. And so let's talk about some uh, some of these answers. And these are questions that I've been asked this last week, but also I've been asked, I mean, I've been asked hundreds of times these questions over the last 20 years of ministry. So Since you ask part three in conclusion today, number one, are we living in the end times? The short answer to that question is yes. And the the reason why that's not a hard question to answer in and of itself is because the end times represent the times between the death, burial, and ascension of Jesus and present day uh, circumstances. So... If you think about the, the, the history of the unfolding of Scripture, for instance, you have, uh, you have the origins of the universe, you have the covenant with Abraham, you have the establishment of the nation of Israel, you have this real problem that exists in humanity called sin, and then the remedy for sin, which is Jesus, the provision of salvation on the cross, and then you have, again, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And from that point forward, the church has been looking forward to the return of Christ, which is the culmination or the conclusion, if you will, of human history here on this earth. So yes, we're living in the end times. But really what that question really is trying to ask is, are there present day events going on right now that give us clues as to how close is the return of Jesus? Now, I'm not actually going to unpack that in any depth today because I'm doing a whole series coming up later this year on the book of Revelation. So I'm excited about that. And I'm just going to give you a little warning not because I know some people get all excited about that. But I won't have huge banners and posters all across here trying to map out when exactly Jesus is going to come back. I might be a bit disappointing for a few of you as well, but I'm okay with that. Um, here's the short version, though. In my understanding of Scripture, there's nothing else that needs to happen that would, that, would, that would need to take place in order for Jesus to come back. Jesus can come back at any moment. What is promised us in Scripture in Acts chapter 2 is that the same Jesus who left, who went to the Father, will return. He is coming back. And I don't know if that's going to be another day or another thousand years, quite honestly. And the truth is, you don't know either. And Jesus didn't even know when he was here. Now, whether or not he's been given that information now in heaven, we're not sure. But the truth is, is that Jesus himself says, no man knows the hour, only the Father. Right? And so I think it's important for us. And by the way, I love conversations about eschatology, the end times events. I think it's important to have those discussions. But the primary responsibility of the Christian is to be ready. Not as one who sleeps and who's, who's slumbering, who is not alert, but one who is very alert because at any moment Christ can come back. That's the importance in Scripture, that we all are ready when he recomes. That it should be a great day, not a day that just catches us totally by surprise, right? We long for the appearing of Jesus. And so, 
that's going to give you a little precursor to the conversation we're going to have about Revelation, but I hope that helps. Yes, we're living in the end times. And no, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. If you hear a message on TV or on the radio or reading a book somewhere that says the day, you can skip that day. We've been wrong so many times. Jesus was supposed to come back in like 1912 and 1914 and 1928 and 27 and then in like 86 and then 87, 88, 89, 90. He missed all those. And then again later on in 2000, missed all those as well. And so no dates I'm going to pick. Fair? All right. Next question. Can a person lose their salvation? If so, can they ever become saved again? Now, the first question's been asked many, many times. The second question is one that's not discussed a whole lot. I know in the room today that that we have a lot of different uh, uh, backgrounds represented. And remember, this question's an internal conversation inside the church, okay? So if you disagree with me on the answer, you don't have to leave our church. It's totally okay that we would disagree on the answer to this question. But this question is a very important question. But I think it's asked a little bit bit off. I I think the actual question needs to be adjusted. Can a person lose their salvation? The answer is no. But that's not actually the right question to ask in terms of understanding the nature of salvation. It's not as though, you know, like you lose your keys and can't find them. You can't lose your salvation. That I can't find my salvation. Is it in this pocket or this pocket? We don't do that with salvation. It's way more than just an idea of I can't remember where my salvation is, right? What is the nature of salvation? I don't know if you stop to consider the, the gravity, the spiritual significance of saying someone is saved. Think about what, it's, what, it, what it means to be saved. In our sinfulness, we are under the wrath of God. And I know that in 21st century Christianity, it's not popular to talk about the wrath of God or the punishment that's eternal. I know we don't like to talk about that. But the truth is, left to myself in my own sinfulness, I am at odds with God. We're called enemies of God. We, We are at odds with God. And our sin separates us from God. And the ultimate consequence, the ultimate punishment for sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. That is eternal separation from God. And so when someone says that they've been saved, it's not, you know, just some kind of cool term and some cool thing you did in church. Your eternal destiny is changed in salvation. I'm going from someone who is under the wrath of God to someone that is no longer condemned by God. My eternal state, my eternal destiny is changed in salvation. And so when we say someone is saved, we're saying that their eternity is forever changed. That's a huge deal. How does that happen? It happens through acceptance of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. It happens when I surrender my life to him and I receive the salvation uh, provided for me in Christ. That's how someone is saved. Now, can someone lose it? No. The better question is, can someone forfeit it? The answer to that question is yes. Now, how does that work? And if someone can forfeit it, can someone ever be saved again? Great question. So, I want to give you an illustration today, and uh, maybe this will help unpack this for you. Um, Did you ever, when you were growing up, did you ever... uh, do those team building exercises where you had to get a group of people together and, and, and you were supposed to do some event that, that brought you all together. Do you, you ever do the, the trust fall or the faith fall? Did you ever do that? 
So it's an interesting, interesting picture, isn't it? So the trust fall, the faith fall, is a great representation of, of what happens in salvation. Right? Hey, Craig, come here. <laughs> All right, so just stand right there. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so think about for a moment just what, what faith is. In terms of salvation, I want you to just think about this. I'm falling, and I need someone to catch me. I am, I am hopeless and helpless without someone to catch me, and I need someone to rescue me. In salvation, salvation is placing my faith in a certain object, the object being Jesus. So I want you to think for a moment <clears throat> about about the idea of falling. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay. I want you to think for just a moment. There's some lights in the way. I want you to think for just a moment about what it... Oh, this could be bad. Okay, I'm standing on these lights. If it breaks, forgive me. Can you catch me? Sorry. you think for a moment. The faith fall. I can see you on that camera right there. Okay, so salvation is me placing my faith in Jesus who will catch me. Okay, I'm not actually going to fall. <laughs> I love you, man, but I got a little bit more to say. And if you, if you didn't catch me, whew, that's the essence. Who's going to catch you? Is it possible for a person to forfeit that? The answer is yes. How? It's not attached to our sin. Jesus paid the price, the penalty for my sin, past, present, and future. That is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the former things are gone and everything has become new. God sees me as righteous before the Father because I have trusted Jesus to catch me. He is my Savior. I grew up believing that every time I sinned, I needed to confess that to the Father or I would die and go to hell. That was my teenage years. Sin is paid for. It does not matter if you sin a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand or a million more times after salvation, you are saved. And I know what some of you just did right now. You just like puckered up. You were squeezed up like, I cannot believe you just said that, Matt, that you just gave people license to sin. No, hear me. Salvation, genuine transformation draws me to holiness, not more sinfulness. But my salvation is not contingent on a certain sin that I may or may not commit. Salvation is contingent only upon the object of my faith. How is it then that someone can forfeit their salvation? It's not by committing a series of sins. But rather, by exchanging the object of my faith. (laughs) Danny, you didn't know you were going to get up here. Come here. Craig, I'm sorry, man. You and I just didn't work out. 
You were nice for a while, but no longer. I've got a new Savior. We connect. You can be seated. Thank you. You can be seated. (laughs) It's coming to a place in a person's existence where they believe that Jesus is no longer sufficient for salvation. Therefore, they exchange the object of their faith to something else. What is it? Another religion? Another system? Another process? Another something that they believe will give them access into heaven? It's the exchanging of, my, of the object of my faith. That's the only way, as I understand scripture, for someone to not be saved after they are saved. Can a person ever get it back? The answer, I believe, from scripture is no. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, the great passage of scripture, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. It's impossible for someone who's once been enlightened, who's tasted of the heavenly gift, who's shared in the Holy Spirit, if they should fall away to be brought back to repentance again, to, because to their loss or to their shame, they would be crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace or shame. In other words, it's impossible for someone who has been saved, if they fall away and exchange the object of their faith, to come back to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus already provided salvation once and for all on the cross. And if you reject that salvation, then you must find another way. In other words, Jesus would have to come back and recreate a whole other system for you to be saved again. And it's not going to happen. Because there is no other name given to men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus provided it fully and completely through his death, burial, and resurrection. There's no return. That person would be in in some theological sense apostate. They would be apart from God and they would be hardened in their heart to the point where they would not want to receive the salvation. And so that's the picture. Hope that helps. Next. If God is love, then won't everyone... Go to heaven. Now that is an interesting follow-up question to salvation. When you think about the nature of God for a moment, God is love. He does not contain love. He does not possess love. It's not just that he demonstrates love occasionally. He is, in his essence, love. I think Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And and the the premise of the book is that, that ultimately love wins out. That God, in his... In his love, will make sure everyone is with him in heaven. He loves the world and he wants to redeem the world. The problem with the idea that everyone goes to heaven is it's just unbiblical. You cannot make a biblical case in my understanding of Scripture to be able to say that everyone goes to heaven. Is God love? Absolutely. Does God want everyone to go to heaven? As far as I understand Scripture, God desires for all to be saved. He's long-suffering. But Genesis 3 separated us from God. That's what sin does. And God has been working throughout history to provide the means of salvation, which is Jesus. And he invites anyone and everyone to receive salvation. But hear me. God created us free. Uh, Illustration time. Uh, When you were growing up, for some of you maybe now, but when you were growing up, did you ever want to date someone, want want someone else to like you or love you, but they just wouldn't? Did that ever happen to you? It happened to me. I so wanted this certain, this certain girl when I was growing up to like me, even to love me. I was just like infatuated with her. And, and I, I so wanted her to return that, 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 that feeling, that sentiment. Never, ever did she. Can you believe that? Well, I know it's a hard story to believe, but it's true. I, she just did not want to be in a relationship with me whatsoever. 
And as much as I longed for her to, 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 to return the feeling, to return the sentiment, there was no way that I actually wanted her to be forced into that. Do you know how miserable a forced relationship is? Could you imagine being married to someone that was like held at gunpoint and made to love you? Love is, 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 a, is a decision, a choice in this regard. And God longs for us to choose him. And he loves us so much that he allows us to say no to him. He doesn't force you into his presence. He invites you. Here's what scripture says. Wide or broad is the way that leads to death. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it. As much as I want everyone to go to heaven, not everyone will go to heaven. Since you ask, does the Bible have any errors? Hmm. Hmm. If you have your Bibles handy, you can do this in your own personal time. Look up Matthew 16 and John 7. And see if Scripture, in the NIV specifically, doesn't state, hey, the earliest manuscripts don't have these section of Scriptures. <laughs> oh, what? You mean there's parts of the Bible that we're not sure are supposed to be in the Bible? Can I give you a quick history lesson? I'm going to. <laughs> so, follow, follow the thought. Let's, let's do a little Bible trivia. How, what languages, there are three of them, was the Bible originally written in? Come on. Yeah, good, I heard him. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, that's right. You get bonus questions for one of our core values. You know what you believe. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, three, three languages of the Bible originally. Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, Aramaic, New Testament. Uh, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. It's called the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, eventually was compiled over a series of time, translated from those languages into Latin and other languages, and eventually into English, the progression of this process. When the original writings were given to us, Hebrew, Greek, Hebrew and Greek text, the original writing, when the author penned it for the first time, it's called the autograph. There are no surviving autographs available for us today. In other words, there's no original available for us to look at. What we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. We call these manuscripts. And there are manuscripts available for us to study, but there are not originals for us to study. In those manuscripts, if you were looking at them, they don't all say the same thing. Uh, you can read the book, The Case for Christ. It's an older book by Lee Strobel. It does a great job pa- unpacking this for you. But there are variances in the text. They don't all say the same thing. But inside of Christianity, we say the Bible is inerrant, infallible. It is without error. But the truth is the Bible that we read today does have some problems with it. Should your faith be diminished because of that? Absolutely not. Do you know why? Because this has been thoroughly vetted over and over and over again. What we have available for us today are incredibly reliable documents that tell the story of the history of the origins of the universe, the origins of a people group called Israel through a covenant with Abraham, the origins of salvation, which is through Christ, and the story of the church. We have all this available for us to look at. 
and it's been thoroughly vetted, and it has been found reliable time and time again. The Bible that you read is a reliable document, and that's not a faith statement. It's a truth claimed based on evidence. You can rest assured the Bible you're reading is reliable. Okay, Is it without errors? Well, that's a loaded question. We say that it's without errors in its original manuscripts or original autograph. We don't have those. But here's what we do believe. The Bible was given to us, handed down to us through the inspiration of the scripture, through the inspiration of the Spirit. God, through the Spirit, spoke. Writers wrote them down, penned the words, and we have the story of the history of how God rescued man from his sin. That's what we have in Scripture. Hope that helps. Since you ask, where is the Trinity mentioned in the Bible? If it's not, then where did that idea come from? Oh man, good question. If God is three persons, then how is that not polytheism? <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Where's the Trinity mentioned in Scripture, in the Bible? It's not. It's nowhere in Scripture that the word Trinity is mentioned. It's not used, but that's not abnormal. There's many, many other words we use in Christianity that aren't listed in the Scriptures. The word, the word Bible itself or Holy Bible is not mentioned in Scripture in those terms. Uh, many, many theological terms and concepts that aren't specifically mentioned in Scripture. Don't get tied up about that. Is the concept of the Trinity mentioned in Scripture? Yes. Matthew chapter 3 in the baptism of Jesus just before his temptation. What happens? In Matthew chapter 3, the son is in the water with John the baptizer, John the Baptist. The son is there. A voice from heaven declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Then the spirit of God like a dove descends and rests upon the son, right? All three persons of the Trinity on display right there. The father in heaven, the son here, the spirit descending. Now, why is that important? Because there's an old model of, of this idea of the nature of God that's it's not, not really re- relevant today. But the old model says, or one of the models used to say, that, the fa- that God was the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and then the Spirit now presently. It's called modalism, and that's not true. The three distinct persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are, are different and unique. There's no question about that. They are persons. They are personal beings. They interact with one another. <laughs> Which leads you to the question, how is that not polytheism? I went to college for four years. I've studied this out thoroughly. I have watched YouTube videos and read books. You ready for the answer? I don't know. I have seen so many charts. I have heard every kind of illustration from egg to water and all kinds of things in between to try to describe how three can be one. And in my mind, three are three. But I know in Scripture that God is one. He is one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. And there are no other gods besides the one true God. And I also know that John tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I know those things are true. And so I know that God is triune, all three, three persons and yet one. And I can't wrap my brain around that. In an earthly form, I know that Jennifer and I are two beings, but we are called one in marriage. And if two can become one on earth, I guess three can be one in heaven, all right? That's the best I can come up with. (laughs) 
Is there more to it? Of course there are. There, there's more to it. But what I know for sure is there are not multiple gods. There is one God revealed to us in Scripture. Very clear. Hmm. So let's, let's think about the questions for a moment. The nature of God, theology... Who is he? And how has he been revealed to us? And why should that matter? Think about the questions. Can we believe the story? Is the Bible real? Is it true? Is it giving me a true picture of the person of God and the work of Jesus? I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Well, who is God? Does he love me? Yes. But here's the problem. We all are separated from God. That's what sin does. It separates me from God. And what do I need more than anything else in this world? Well, what I need is to be restored in relationship to the very God who has revealed himself to me in the Bible. So these questions of theology are not just for some college academic, you know, degree. I would say to you, the question about who is God is the most important question someone will ever ask and answer in their life. You know, it's possible that as I was talking about the whole idea of salvation and this idea of being apart from God and separated from God, it's possible that someone in the room, maybe, that, maybe your heart was stirred in some way and you begin to realize, I'm not sure if I've ever resolved that. I'm not sure if I've ever dealt with that reality myself that my sin has separated me from, from God and I need to be saved. I need forgiveness. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting in the end of this Since You Asked series for us to just for a moment ponder that question personally. Have I ever personally dealt with my own sin problem? My own sense of being separate? Have I ever, ever considered that what Jesus did on the cross made the way for me to be forgiven and to be in a right relationship with God? So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solidchurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solidchurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.